around and see what this new Chevy pickup could do. And so I got in and you know, on, on my own, just by myself, not with any friends, not under the influence of any other uh, friend of mine, just by myself, started to drive around some of the gravel roads around town and then came upon a road that had one of those big yellow signs on it that said minimum maintenance road. Now, I was only 16 years old. I, I was pretty clueless um, as to things like that. The road looked attractive to me driving my, my dad's new pickup because it had more snow on this road than the other ones had on it that I was driving on. And so uh, I did not understand that in wintertime, minimum maintenance meant basically no maintenance. So you can imagine my not understanding what I was dealing with there. It got me into some big trouble. I uh, got the truck stuck about a half mile uh, down that road. Had to get out and walk another two miles to a farm place in order to call my parents for help. Didn't have any mobile phones back then. And of course, um, all of a sudden, I was, I was a very spiritual person at that moment. <laughs> praying that my mother would answer the phone and not my father, and the Lord answered my prayer. Um, but then, of course, had to explain later to my father just what I had been thinking prior to driving his new pickup on that road when I had told him, of course, that I just wait in town at school after practice until I had to work. So we get ourselves in big trouble if we don't know what we are dealing with, especially when it comes to the law of God. Paul was concerned about this for the church in Ephesus, and that is one clear reason why he wrote this letter to Timothy. He knew if they didn't know what they were dealing with when it came to the law, or if anyone in the church had been misled by the certain persons, the false teachers that he, that he mentions here in the, in the previous paragraph, if they, anyone had been misled when it came to the law, that they would be in very big trouble. So our main theme as we look at these uh, four verses here on the law, verse 8 through 11, we must understand the law in light of the gospel. We must understand the law in light of the gospel. Um, in these verses, Paul is focused on the law. He has just said in verses 6 and 7 that these certain persons were desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So therefore, here in the next four verses, verses 8 through 11, Paul gives this brief discourse on the law. And a pastor that, that I respect said once, every true child of the faith must have a true understanding of the law. And I agree with that. Uh, but if it's a must for every child of the faith to have a true understanding of the law, well then, it's even more crucial for teachers of the faith to have a true understanding of the law. Uh, Paul doesn't give us uh, an exhaustive teaching on the law in these verses, but he is making an important point. That is, we must understand the law in light of the gospel. And he first uh, brings up the right use of the law in verses 8 and 9. Secondly, the serious necessity of the law in verses 9 through 10. And thirdly, the lawful use of the gospel in uh, 10 and 11. 
So those are three uh, uh, headings make up the structure of our sermon. So first of all, then, the right use of the law, verses 8 and the first part of verse 9. The first thing that Paul wants us to understand is that the law is good. The law is good. God's law is good. It has a good purpose. It is, it is good for us. It will do us good to understand it. It's not uncommon for believers to think of the law as this, this burden, as something that, that weighs people down. Uh, we don't like hearing sermons on the law. They, they can be discouraging. Paul wants us to recognize that the law is good. It's good for us to hear about. It's good for us to think about. It's good for us to know. And so that you know, question then falls on us. How well do you know the law? When I was in seminary, I found out that there is this little test that uh, some seminary professors like to do for their students, especially the first-year students in their classrooms. Uh, they will ask their class to, to raise their hands if they know all of the Ten Commandments. And of course, these, these uh, proud young, young men who are training to be pastors, uh, who have been told over and over again by their churches or by uh, others that, uh, that they should be pastors, and so they come to seminary, and uh, they, they will almost always all raise their hands right up. They, they know all of the Ten Commandments. They wouldn't want to have their fellow students, and especially their professor, think that they didn't know them. But then, of course, the professor will select one of the students who raised his hand and, and ask him to stand and recite all the Ten Commandments for the class. And it's quite often a humbling experience for those students. Now, I'm not going to do that to you here this morning, but I do want you to think. Consider for a moment if you know the Ten Commandments. Would you be able to recite the Ten Commandments if you were asked? Maybe not in front of a, you know, the whole church here, room full of people, but perhaps just to your son, to your daughter, or your grandson, or, or your granddaughter, or, or, or just, just for a curious non-Christian friend who, who, who would ask you about them. What are the Ten Commandments? How well do you know the law? Paul says the law is good. The law is good. But Paul gives a qualification here in verse 8. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. So if we are to understand the law, we must understand how to use the law lawfully. There's a little play on words here by, by Paul. It's, it's, it's like saying the law is good when we use it according to the law. That is the use, uh, uh, the, that, that is use the law according to its purpose. The two leading reformers of the church in the 16th century, Martin Luther and John Calvin, both wrote about the functions of the law, the use of the law according to the scripture. Calvin settled on three uses of the law. He said that the Bible teaches that God uses the law to condemn sinners and reveal our need for Christ. That's the first use of the law. Uh, the law teaches us about God's righteousness, his holiness, and reveals to us our utter lack of it. The law then acts like a mirror, as, uh, as uh, uh, James chapter 1 uh, showed us, as, as Ben read for us earlier. The law acts like a mirror, showing us 
who we are, showing us our sins and our guilt before God's holiness and thus drives us to Christ for salvation from our sins and our need to be covered by his perfect righteousness. Uh, But before I, I share Calvin's second use of the law, I want to tell you about his third. So I'm leaping over his second use of the law, now going to the third use of the law that, that, that Calvin uh, taught. Um, so I believe in this passage, Paul is highlighting the second use, so we'll spend the majority of our time on that. However, as I hope that we'll, we'll also see before we get to the end of our message this morning, that all three uses of the law work together uh, to give us the true understanding of the law that we need. So the third use of the law, then, is, is once the law has, has humbled us as sinners to see our need for Christ, to be our Savior. The law then teaches and exhorts us on how to live like Christ. Those who are saved by God's grace in Christ will then look to the law, to God's word here, to guide us in how to please God. Believers live out our gratefulness to God for his mercy to us by seeking to honor him to please him by obeying his law now it seems that paul is focusing as i said earlier on what calvin identified as the second use of the law here in these verses in 8 through 11 that is the law helps to restrain evildoers from doing what they want to do and so to protect the community Uh, in this function the law acts as a deterrent preventing people from being or doing evil by the threat of punishment. Uh, In one of his plays, the early 20th century playwright Maxwell Anderson wrote, without law, men are beasts. We need the law to deter men from being beasts, from from, uh, doing what their evil desires are wanting them or leading them to do. So God has given the law to help to restrain sinful men from making the world an unlivable place. Civilized societies have modeled their laws after God's law for generations. And we we all instinctively know what is morally right and wrong. According to God, it has been implanted deep within us on our very souls. So that's the second purpose or second use of the law. We see that in verse 9 where Paul explains, again, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, and he then goes on as well in the next couple of verses. As Luther has said, not the saint, but the sinner is the law's target. Or as another good pastor has put it, all law is designed for those whose natural tendency is not to keep it, but to break it. The world is full of people whose hearts are inclined toward lawlessness. Our natural tendency is to break the law. And it's important to understand that about ourselves and those we teach the Christian faith to if we are to teach the faith rightly. And that would include understanding the law is good and that we must use it according to God's intention. Now, secondly, we see the serious necessity of the law, again, verse 9 and then 10. The serious necessity of the law. Uh, Now, why is the law 
necessary, as you've just heard, the law is necessary because we are all lawbreakers. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And in verses 9 and 10, Paul continues to describe in more detail just who the law is for. And as he does, we might notice that he seems to be working his way through the Ten Commandments. We should also notice that this is just uh, one long sentence here. Verses 8 through 11 is just one long sentence. Paul, Paul does this in his letters a few times, usually uh, where it seems that he is digressing a bit from his original thought, which uh, some scholars believe that that's just what he's doing here in verses 9 through 10, uh, this brief digression on the law. Uh, so before we, we, we focus on, on these two verses, verses 9 and 10, let's take a little digression ourselves and remind ourselves of the Ten Commandments. So um, Exodus 20, maybe some of you were wondering, yeah, just what, what are those Ten Commandments? Um, Exodus 20 is where you find them. And so we're just going to read through the Ten Commandments here, revealed to us in Exodus 20, and remind ourselves of them. So Exodus 20, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. We'll stop the reading there. Now back in 1 Timothy, in verses 9 and 10, we can definitely sense that Paul is being guided by those Ten Commandments, by the law, as he describes for us all the different ways that the lawless and the disobedient break these commandments. But he seems to be taking it even a step further. He, he seems he is giving more extreme examples of the ways in which those who rebel against God's law are breaking these commands here in these verses. Listen again to Paul's description of who the law is for, verse 9 and 10. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now the initial descriptions in verse 9 seem to refer to a general description of those whom the law is for. For the lawless 
and disobedient. And we are to understand uh, these words, lawless and disobedient, as describing those who are fiercely independent and rebellious. Those who insist on living as those who are answerable only to themselves. They will not submit themselves to any greater authority. Then the next, next four descriptions also seem to be more general descriptions, but may actually be referring to the first four commands of the Ten Commandments. These, these four commands have to do with honoring God as the one true living and holy God. And so uh, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane, would be descriptions of those who live as if there is no God. Those who live without fear of God. Those who mock God by their idolatry and their sin. Seeking to worship created, created things rather than the one creator to whom they owe, owe their lives to. Now this clearly teaches us that the law has to do with God. And it is to God that we are primarily held accountable. When we defy the law, we defy God. When we ignore the law, we turn our back on God. When we don't take the law seriously, we are acting as if God is nothing. He's meaningless. Nothing to be concerned about. It's why David, when he was confessing his sins of adultery and murder in Psalm 51, he said this to the Lord, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He knew that he was primarily dealing with God in breaking his law. The next description would, would point directly to the fifth commandment here, which says, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, uh, those, you know, they, they don't just dishonor their fathers and mothers. They don't just disobey their fathers and mothers. Paul says those who strike them with the sense of attempting to injure them. Some, some commentators even think trying to kill them is what's meant here. The next is for murderers, those who act out their anger and hate toward God by destroying the life of one made in his image. And then at the beginning of verse 10, the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. This word for sexual immorality or, or fornication, it covers any willful sexual act that is outside of the bounds of marriage, of marriage between one man and one woman. Paul goes on to speak or to specify um, uh, men who sin in committing acts of homosexuality as being a particularly heinous way of breaking God's law, identifying them with the lawless, with the disobedient, with the ungodly. Sinners, the unholy and profane. God's word is clearly saying here, this behavior, this lifestyle is not harmless. It's not something to be celebrated. It is to be condemned. It is condemned by God. The eighth commandment is then mentioned in another extreme form, not, not just stealing property, but those who enslave fellow humans those who enslave, those who are made in God's image. The word is literally man-stealing. 
It is condemned by God's law. So don't ever believe the Bible had nothing to say about the evils of kidnapping humans in Africa and then forcing them across the ocean to work in the sugar fields of the Caribbean or the tobacco and cotton plantations in the American South. It is condemned here along with murdering and lying and committing perjury. So the law is for lawbreakers such as these, those who are metaphorically shaking their fists at God and declaring, we will not have you rule over us, murderers, sexually immoral, homosexuals, enslavers, liars, perjurers. We, we all know, we all know there are people like this in our world and in our society. We also know that there are people like this in the church. If we would honestly look over this list, we would see each of ourselves here. We're here. We're in this list. This is the the mirror of the law. So even though it seems like Paul is mainly referring to the second use of the law here, that is to restrain sin, the first use of the law is also at work here. God's using the law through these verses. We have lied. We have disobeyed. We have spoken with with profane language and we've blasphemed God. We have been sexually immoral in our hearts, if not in our physical actions. Sinners are shown who they really are. Right here. Condemned before a just and holy God in desperate need of salvation. So, is there any hope? Can the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and the sinful, be helped? Is there any help or hope for a murderer? Is there any hope for the sexually immoral? Is there any hope for men who practice homosexuality? How about for enslavers, human traffickers? Can they be saved? Can they be changed? Will God have mercy? That brings us to the lawful use of the gospel. So we now come to the end of the sentence which began with Paul's concern that when teaching the law, we must use it lawfully. We must know what we are dealing with and whom we are dealing with. We are to know that that the law is for sinners and that it must be used, as we see here, in verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with, with which I have been entrusted. This is teaching us that we can't use the law in the way it was intended without the gospel, without the good news of what God has done in and through his son Jesus Christ to save those under condemnation for breaking God's law. People only ever come to Christ in the gospel if they know their guilt according to the law. People will not seek help until they are convinced that they are in great need of it. The big problem for most Americans today, and and you all know this, is that they don't understand who they are dealing with. They have no idea who they are dealing with. They haven't been confronted with his law. 
the message that we receive constantly over and over again is that you are a good person. You have a good heart. There is nothing wrong with you. Do what you want. Be yourself. You don't have to answer to anyone but your own self. When in reality, the law says that we are condemned. We are sons of disobedience. We are children of wrath. We are under God's judgment. This is where we must take, we, we must make the connection with the gospel. Our guilt from our law-breaking hangs over us. Our sins cover us. We have all failed to live according to the sound doctrine of God's word. And yet, yet, God has paid the price for it all. Christ Jesus went under the wrath of God for us. And now, in and through Christ, we are free from the condemnation of the law. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. Luther said this about the law. He said, It is a mighty hammer to crush the self-righteousness of man. For it shows them their sin, so that by recognition of sin they may be humbled, frightened, and worn down, and so may long for grace and for the blessed offspring. That is Christ. He says the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The law condemns us, but the gospel redeems us. The law holds us guilty. The gospel justifies sinners before God. This is all by the incredible, remarkable grace of God. The glory of God is found, of course, in his character, and we've learned from how God revealed himself to Moses that God's character is one of steadfast love and faithfulness, which while it is gracious and merciful, does not ignore justice and punishment. So our sins had to be paid for. Our breaking of the law had to be paid for. Atonement had to be made. Justice had to be done, and justice has and will be done for every sin that you've ever committed. Justice will fall for everyone who has dishonored or hurt their parents, for every murderer, for every sinner caught up in sexual immorality, including homosexuality, for every enslaver and liar and perjurer, for every wicked, rebellious sinner, justice will fall either on them in hell or on Christ when he was on the cross. That is the glory of the gospel. At the cross, God revealed both the glory of his justice against sin and the glory of his grace and mercy in his son dying in the place of his sinful people. Isaac Watts, the, the, the great hymn writer, wrote this, We live estranged afar from God and love the distance well. With haste we run the dangerous road that leads to death and hell. And can such rebels be restored, such natures made divine? Let sinners see thy glory, Lord, and feel this power of thine, that is the power of the gospel. We raise our Father's name on high, who his own, own spirit sends to bring rebellious strangers nigh and turn his foes to friends. Because of the gospel, there is hope for the worst of sinners. 
And that means there's hope for you, as well as your neighbor. As we make our way to the table this morning, I'll invite our, our men who will help us to serve to come forward. But as this law hangs over us, as we've been confronted once again with the reality of our sin, and we are all, we're all guilty before him, and have been reminded of the grace of the, of the gospel, the glory of the gospel, We all need to come face to face with who we are. Who are you? Are you in Christ? Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? Or are you one that we talked about earlier that doesn't take the law seriously? Doesn't, doesn't think it, that you've re, you really been all that bad? Doesn't think that you, 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 that you really would deserve the judgment of God for what you've done, for how you've lived? Who are you? If you know yourself to be one who has failed in every way to obey the law, and you also know the grace of God in sending a son Jesus to save sinners like you, and you've put your trust in him alone, you are right before God. You stand righteous in his sight because of Christ. And this table is for you. But if you know you, you are not one who has turned away from your sins and, and recognized your guilt before God and, and have put your hope and faith in Christ alone for, for your salvation, you might be looking at other things. You were baptized as a, as a baby. You went to church when you were young. Your parents were Christians. And you're looking at those other things thinking, surely, surely I'm Okay because of those things, or whatever else you're looking to, well then this table is not for you. Because you've not put your hope and faith in Christ alone, the only way of salvation. And so if that is, is where you sit this morning, we just ask it as we pass the bread and the cup, cup out that you would just pass them on. You would not participate. But would instead think about, think about the reality of what God's word is saying. You stand guilty before him, and yet out of his grace and mercy, he has given you a way out. Christ Jesus, his son. Put your trust in him. Hope in him alone. Repent of your sin. And begin to follow his word. I'll read the instructions that uh, we are given for the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given the thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why I asked you to, to consider who you are this morning uh, as we come to the table. The man would stand. We'll pass the bread out first and invite all who are hoping in Christ alone to take a piece of bread and hang on to it.
until we've all been served and we'll partake of the, the bread together. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask now for your, for your blessing upon the Lord's table. We come before you, Lord, um, humbled by your law, but Father, rejoicing in Christ. Lord, help us to proclaim his death together, realizing that is the only way that we can be made right before you and be forgiven of our sin is because of what Christ has accomplished for us on that cross and in his life, death, and resurrection. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.